0: Please listen carefully. Carefully. Carefully.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Utterly Moderate podcast, where two reasonable social scientists discuss important topics by focusing on just the facts and none of the unneeded opinions and biases. I'm Alison Dagnes, and I'm a political scientist.
2: And I'm Lauren Seppard. I'm a Scientologist. <laughs> <laughs> How's it going today, Allie?
1: <laughs> well, it's you know, it's a it's a busy time of year and I, I sense it's a busy time of year for you too.
2: I don't think it's as busy as you, but this week has just been crushing my soul on Aww. Saturday I had, you know, I've got eight hundred kids and so an all day thing then. We had travel soccer that day as well. Sunday, I had an article due. Uh, Monday, my tenure portfolio was due. Tuesday, I had our event, which is we're going to play highlights from today. Uh, Wednesday, I gave a seminar in an education class. Thursday, I was preparing a student for a conference. Saturday, I have a conference. That same day, I have a travel soccer game with my daughter,
1: Oh, I'm good exhausted. Lord. I bet you are. <laughs> and, and yet, I mean, you know, what? As you, as you, though. it's well, you, you, I just want to go back to Halloween for just one second, because at some point we did talk about the fact that you have like a pretend graveyard in your front yard. So it is. So did, was that still there? And was that amazing? And were the kids just everything for you this year? Was it great?
2: They were. And uh, as I told you off the air, my son dressed up as, Winnie the Pooh.
1: Oh, gosh, so cute. Oh, so you pictures, cute. And it you was the
2: thing in the whole freaking world.
1: So. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I just, oh, I love that so much. Um, I I have to say, like, I, I'm sure it is um, perhaps my advancing age. Uh, I'm getting just hit with all of these adorable baby pictures now. And I think part of it is is Halloween and part of it is having former students who are now having babies and they are sweetly sending me all of these great baby pictures. So I am going to start a project the babies of political science <laughs> and um and so i'm i've just got to sort of figure out what it is that i want to do like a with a this or- now i i think i want to do like a book like to have like to have like our you know all of our alumni like any alumni send us your you know send us a picture of your baby and just Tell us like what year you graduated and, you know, tell us about your baby kind of thing. Just because I've just been getting so many of these cute pictures and all of them make me cry. Like oh. every single one of them. They're just the cutest things in the entire world. Wow.
2: Well, I know you pretty well. I don't think you have a whole lot of time in your schedule to do that, especially now with all the elections going on.
1: Well, yeah, that's the other thing that's going on, right? It was it's it's, <laughs> the, other thing, it's the, big thing. the big thing, right? You know, aside from that, Mrs. Lincoln, um, <laughs> you know, it uh, it's it's the silly season for political scientists because even though it is an off year election year, um, there still was a big election that happened this week, and so in between everything else, I. Um, was doing a bunch of talks and interviews. And so I got to do a call-in show with another political scientist from Muhlenberg College, Chris Borick, who I just I love Chris so much. And we've never, you know, we we know each other, we've been on conference panels together and we see each other fairly frequently. We've never done an hour-long call-in show together. And uh, Chris, if you are listening, I'm telling you, buddy, I I, th- I think that this is a thing. Like I think we really, we, we, we did it well. Um, I was able to slide in a good thing about uh, Joni Ernst castrating hogs in um, in Iowa, and you know what? If you can slide that in to a Colin show about Pennsylvania, I think that uh, I think we have good TV chemistry. Um, so it's it's just a very just a very very busy very very busy week. Um, and so, so
2: journalists have been calling you a lot about like interpreting the election results, or
1: that's exactly right. And basically, you know, I've just. I, I don't even know that I had any great hot takes. I did spend a tremendous amount of time, though, googling uh, the word shellacking, uh <laughs> and "thumping" because that's really how you could just describe what happened to the spoil. Democrats. <laughs> 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 like, how many ways can you say, "Boy, did they suck"? They were killed. Um, they were, yeah, them. they, they, were, they were about it. Exactly. It was a. It was a real mess. Right. Um, yeah. So I now have a tremendous list on my computer, just so that I sound fresh and original, because I
2: think that. Seen. Did you ever see the movie <laughs> of The Campaign with Zach Galifianakis? I did.
1: The, yeah, I when did. You said it
2: was a real mess. It reminded me. There's some line in there where he's like, I'm going to Washington and I'm bringing my broom because it's a math.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yep. I have a feeling there are a lot of Democrats out there who are looking for some brooms right now.
2: <laughs> well, they got swept. There's another no room for you.
1: Okay. Boom. <laughs> you see, reasonable social scientist just right there, right there. Yep.
2: Well, and you mentioned uh, your interaction with journalists who obviously have been very, very busy. And that's the topic of today's pod journalism and democracy we had a, a um an event on tuesday we and did
1: and it was speakers. so good and our students and i just want first of all you you sing a lot of praises and i need to sing yours you organized this entire thing you found everybody and our students Loved this event. I mean, I love this event too because I'm a journalism junkie. But our students who don't know that much about journalism, they loved this event. And you found three well, you found four wonderful people. One of whom (laughs) couldn't be there because his son is apparently a really good sports person, really good soccer player. Yeah. Okay. Well, see that sports. Um, (laughs) So (laughs) so the so the three people who were there were magnificent, and that's thanks to you. So thanks to you. Lawrence, because this was really, really good. And that's all you.
2: Well, thanks, Allie. That's a nice thing to say. Um, Our democracy is in real trouble right now. And a major cause of those troubles is that Americans have been turning away from credible journalism and relying instead on media outlets, which spread misinformation and disinformation. I have a monthly column in the Sentinel newspaper here in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. And I recently wrote in my column that, quote, Nationally, we may be on the verge of the greatest political and constitutional crisis since the Civil War and quite possibly the suspension of American democracy as we have known it, in the words of Robert Kagan. What can we do to restore our democracy? There are a number of possible courses of action, including new internet regulations and serious news media and political reforms. Until serious large-scale actions are taken to address problems with the internet, partisan news media and our political system, we are all going to have to do our part to restore our democracy. One important step is to consume only reliable information. It could be argued that there is more high-quality journalism and information available to the average American citizen today than in any previous time period. We also have easier access to it than ever before. Think about it. How awestruck would previous generations be ...at the fact that small devices in our pockets contain exponentially more information than their best libraries. Unfortunately, the amount of misinformation and disinformation has grown just as rapidly... ...and it is just as easy and sometimes easier to access. In previous time periods, there were societal guardrails that kept our cognitive biases somewhat at bay. A variety of factors are eroding those protections and unleashing our biases including growing partisanship, the internet, declining trust in institutions which create and or disseminate information, the decline of traditional news outlets and rise of partisan ones, including cable news, talk radio, and partisan websites, and social media. These factors together have helped create a situation where many Americans are unable to differentiate legitimate journalism from biased partisanship, lock themselves in ideological silos, and become addicted to low-quality news sources. Just like tasty but fattening food, low-quality news sources such as cable news, partisan websites, and talk radio make us feel good, are addictive, and are terrible for us. But people have a much easier time differentiating healthy food from unhealthy food than they do reliable news sources from unreliable ones. Imagine how hard a diet would be if you had no idea which foods were healthy and which ones were not. With this in mind, my colleagues, former Chicago Tribune editor Michael Dees and political scientist Allison Dagnes, and I compiled a list of 50 high-quality news and information sources that provide reliable information with limited bias. Building a healthy news diet with a handful of these sources would seriously limit the amount of misinformation and disinformation one consumes. End quote. At the end of the article, I finished up by saying, quote, Democracy is under serious threat. It is time to consider regulating the Internet and reforming news media and, and the political system. For now, we're all going to have to do our part and hold ourselves accountable. With recent developments here in our own state of Pennsylvania, this is as crucial as ever. The future of our republic is at stake and there is no time to lose. End quote. So, Allie and I are very worried about our democracy, and we know how crucial journalism and convincing Americans to return to relying on credible journalism is to restoring our society.
1: There's a reason that we keep returning to this as a topic, um, because it is the foundation of everything else, right? If you don't have good news, then... And by that, I don't mean like, yay. Um, (laughs) Prime change is over. Yay! Girl Scout cookies are delicious. Um, You know, if you don't have uh, solid information, um, then you really cannot go forward to solve the myriad problems that we have. and. We're, we're just really at a, at a breaking point right now. We need to solve the problems. We need to come together in, in a way where we are not so divided. And so, that's something I, I want us to agree upon.
2: Absolutely. Today, we are going to play you a conversation that Allie and I had on November 2nd, 2021, during our Journalism and Democracy panel, which featured Jason Adrian's executive editor at the Wisconsin State Journal and national editor for Lee Enterprises, Lolly Bowen, formerly of the Chicago Tribune and currently at the Field Foundation, and Michael Dees, formerly of the Chicago Tribune and currently on the journalism faculty at Northwestern University. We hope you enjoy this conversation about journalism and democracy coming up next. panelists, will dive right in uh, with a topic for tonight, which is, can you explain to our audience, from your perspective, why a healthy and free press is so vital for a democratic society?
3: Yeah, I, so first of all, I'm Jason. It's great to be here. Thanks for having all of us tonight. I'm looking forward to a a really robust conversation with, uh, with some excellent journalists, editors, and people who I know care a lot about journalism and democracy. So thanks for having us. If we're being serious about this, I think the best way that I can answer why uh, it's important to have uh, to have strong and fair and truthful journalism in a democracy, you know, and, and I've really been thinking about this a lot lately. Um, I think the best way that I can describe it is in a democracy, at least the way that this democracy works here in in our country, we're relying on our citizens, the people who live here, to make decisions that are going to affect the present and future trajectory of our country. And it's always been my experience that you can't make a good decision unless you have all the information. And so that's where we as journalists come in, whether we're independent journalists, online journalists, working for some of the bigger journalism companies in the country. I mean, I think that that, that for me and for the people I work with, we understand that it's our role in a democracy to make sure that... We're always right. We're telling the truth. We're fair and we're balanced because if we don't do our job, the people who we serve in our communities, throughout our state, throughout the country, they won't have the right information to make decisions that, frankly, uh could have dramatic impacts on the way that we all live the rest of our lives. And so, you know, I could probably talk for 15 minutes about this, but as you mentioned, uh, a lot of really smart people uh, on tonight. And I know we've got a lot of topics to get to, but I think that's really, that's really it. It's, 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 it's the simple acknowledgement that if we have people around us making decisions that are going to change how our country operates and what our quality of life here is going to be. We have to make sure that everybody has the right information to do that. That's our role as journalists and editors. I know Lolly wanted to jump in on this question, too, but that's where I'd start the conversation.
4: Absolutely, Jason. Um, Thank you for having me. I hope you guys can hear me okay. Um, I just want to build a little bit on your answer, because you're absolutely right that if we're going to have a democracy that is functional and that is respected, it relies on people being able to make informed decisions. And in order to make informed decisions, they have to have accurate information and they have to have up to date and timely information. And so what I want to build upon is that portion that we kind of skipped over when we talk about a free press in order for a press to be able to pursue news and to pursue truth. It cannot be bound. It cannot be bound by any elected officials. It cannot be bound by government. It cannot be bound by any uh, organizations that are are pulling its strings and using it as a puppet. And so a key to making sure that we are able to do deep investigations to really unfold and pull back the, the blinders and the curtains and make sure that the people have accurate and factual information is having a press a reporter's core that can report, that can really dive into issues and dig into issues and know that they're pursuing the truth without consequences. What separates America and what separates free democracies and countries from those that are not as strong or that are weakened are, is that we have a free press that holds our elected officials and our government accountable 100%. The, the other thing I want to add too, Jason, is that uh, the other importance of having a free press in a strong democracy is that the press journalists are responsible for recording the first draft of history. And what does that first draft do? It informs how we map out our future. It informs how we will develop a blueprint for where we want to go. And we make sure we're not repeating those same mistakes and that we're using it to critique the decisions that we make moving forward. So a a free press is absolutely crucial to a democracy, which is why our founding fathers also supported the idea of having a free and independent media, because they knew that in order to have that, uh, you cannot have
0: a strong democracy. Uh, essentially, yeah, as journalists, not only are we uh, responsible for informing and educating the public, but we are also responsible for facilitating rational discourse in this public arena or public sphere. So, but they covered all the bases.
1: Well, then um, I get to ask a follow-up question um for you michael and it's and it's a long one so strap yourself in <laughs> um so here is here's my question uh former president donald trump has consistently lied about the 2020 election and he continues to do so with the understanding that there are partisan media outlets who will repeat This misinformation for their own political reasons, I would like to focus on the journalistic outlets who were in the business of providing real news and fact. Mm. Last week, the Wall Street Journal printed a letter from former President Trump that included 600 words of primarily false and disproven accusations about the 2020 election, and they did so without any kind of fact-checking or editor's note. The journal did the next day publish a response that said, in part, we trust our readers to make up their own minds. Mm -hmm. Conversely, this week, the Washington Post released a three-part massive story about the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol and asked for former President Trump's response to their findings. When the Post received the same fabrications and deceptions in response, they did not print them at all but noted his answer. So my question for you is this. We live in very dangerous times. What role should journalists play to counter dishonesties and inaccuracies that are made on purpose by some of the most important politicians in the nation and then repeated by partisan media outlets for their own gain?
0: Yeah, that's that's a that's a tough question, and yeah, the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post handled them differently. It would it would it would have been easier if it were a news story, but given that uh, they gave the former president the platform, and Wall Street Journal did not uh, discount anything they said, they just basically basically published what he said verbatim. Mm-hmm.
2: Would you have printed it if you if I, I would if not I there? would
0: not I would not have printed it without. Uh, without being able to rebut, all mm-hmm. right? Or at least have some kind of uh, warning to the, um, the readers, issuing a warning to the readers that the content is, uh, you know, factually uncredible. Um, again, if it were a news story, we could easily just balance the untruths with credible facts and credible uh, credible sources. But in this case, with the Wall Street Journal, I probably would have taken the, the approach of the Washington Post in this particular case. You know, and I'm not one for censorship, but I think that the Washington Post got it right.
2: The response from the next day, the response from the Wall Street Journal was, as as Ali said, we trust our readers to to know the truth, to make up their own minds. And that really is disingenuous because the whole problem with this was that people did believe it, right? And they weren't able to tell what was fact and what wasn't. And that kind of is the purpose of the news organization, right, is to help us suss out these facts. Right. I mean,
4: I agree with you, Lawrence, that the role of the newspaper in the news business, if you're going to be credible, is to separate the facts from the truth. What The Wall Street Journal ran is that they they pretended like it was perspective, but what it was was propaganda propaganda. Right, Propaganda is what we see in countries that we dismiss as not being strong democracies because they publish and promote a perspective that is contrary to the truth. So I agree. I think it's the responsibility and the role of a credible news organization to fact check uh, a perspective piece or an opinion piece before it goes in the paper. Donald Trump has led us into some really dangerous territory in using the media as a tool for advocacy and and that's not what journalists and journalism in this country has been historically about or for. This is almost dangerous territory that he has led a newspaper that was once very credible, the Wall Street Journal, into. And so I think part of what we saw in the past 8 years when he served as president was this confusion among the public about what is fact and what is not and that's in part because Journalists were not doing their jobs aggressively enough to either discredit him, show the truth or just mute the mic when he is spreading falsehoods. And this isn't just true for Donald Trump. This is for any person in the public who is spouting things that are not credible, that if we're going to be a strong uh, journalism organization, this is what our job is. is not to make friends, not to be in support of a particular politician. But to really separate the facts from the, the from fiction for our readers, for my listeners, for the public so that they can make strong decisions. What do you say, Jason?
3: Well, I mean, it, first of all, re- really appreciate the perspective from both Lolly and Michael here. I mean, I think, you know, and, and, and I will answer the question, but I think for me, uh, one thing that I've always tried to hold myself to is it, it, it's really easy to second guess people. It, it really is. And and, you know, I think that, you um, When it comes to publishing something that you maybe shouldn't have published, wish you wouldn't have published, would maybe want to do over on 48 hours later. um, I know that it could be my news organization tomorrow that makes a mistake. And so I try to go out of my way to, you know, if we want to have a, a thoughtful conversation about it, like we're doing here, I think it's perfectly appropriate. But in general, I really try to hesitate and not, you know, critique specific news organizations decisions in general, because I think we all play a major role in this. We all have to make sure that our own organizations are in line with what we believe democracy and journalism should be. But in this case, um, in the way that we handle things here at the Wisconsin State Journal is if we know something's not true, we're not going to publish it. If we as an opinion staff or we as a news organization start just deciding, well, we're going to run something because it's from the president or we're going to run something because it's from the chamber president or we're going to run something because it's from a state senator just to give equal voice and equal time. Well, I mean, that idea is the right idea, but you cannot allow information that you know to be false to be published on your digital platforms, on your social platforms, or on print, period, point blank, the end. Now, There is a difference between news content and opinion content, but I think the point that Lolly is making here is probably the right one, and Michael tried to make it too, which is, you know, you can have different kinds of conversations in the spaces of an opinion page or in an opinion section, but when it comes down to basic information that's factually incorrect, that's been disproven, and is probably and primarily responsible for where we're at in many regards today as a country, My answer is simply no, you cannot publish information that, you know, to be false. And I think that there's a great conversation to be had about allowing a discourse. And there are opinions out there. But the fact is, is that the stuff that we're talking about right now, it wasn't an opinion. It's debunked information. And I can tell you right now here in Madison, we wouldn't have published it. And so normally I I really want to hesitate on criticizing other media outlets because We all have different perspectives, and journalism is not an exact science. But in this case, can't publish it if you know it's false.
4: I just wanted to respond to Jason because I understand that I'm sensitive to the um, hesitancy to criticize a news outlet. But here's why I think it's important to be clear when news outlets make mistakes. As a person who worked in a newsroom for 20 years, a, a along with Mike for many of those years at the Chicago Tribune. When a newspaper itself makes such a big mistake, it ends up discrediting all of the journalists that work there. And the public then raises a question mark to all of the work that you're doing. Very valuable work, right? And so in our city in Chicago, as a reporter, when I would go out on the streets, I was held accountable not just for my own byline and my own work, but also for the decisions that were made by the editorial board that were made by the feature section that was made by the political reporters. I was held into question for all of the work because we work and we present as a unit. So when I say that uh, the Wall Street Journal has entered into dangerous territory, I mean it not just for that publication but for the public at large because all of their staff members are now being held to question for the work that they produce moving forward. And so one of the things that we have to do that has been so, so tough, especially when I was working full time as a a newsroom is hold people accountable when it doesn't feel good, right? Is that we can't be friends to every publication. We can't be friends to every politician. And so in this case, we have to hold the Wall Street Journal accountable for this, this very large mishap that continues to misguide and mislead the public.
3: And if, I may, and if I may respond to that, I agree with everything that Lolly just said, for sure. And I think where where I'm just simply coming from is, uh, you know, over a thousand news organizations out there. And I know here in Madison and throughout the enterprises, each enterprise is different and we all have to hold ourselves accountable. And the work starts in our area. And so where I completely agree with Lolly is what's happened over the course of the last four or five years has cast doubt on all of our good work and and so in this case like i said this is a clear answer for me but i think just in general when we're talking about a mistake or a headline or a misguided opinion i think sometimes my instinct is i want to point here and be like they got it wrong they got it wrong they got it wrong but i ultimately know that if i do too much of that i'm going to point back here at myself and so i'm just talking about for me the work starts here But I can't argue with anything Lolly said about this case, because I completely disagree with the Wall Street Journal's decision, like I said. But I think I think excellent points.
0: And I disagree with the Wall Street Journal. And I have one question for you, Jason. Uh, If it were a news story and if uh, Trump made these false claims in a news story, in which we're reporting directly to the to the news consumers, would you include that in the story and then balance that uh, those untruths? with credible facts, mention what he said, but at the same time, balance it with information that uh, essentially contradicts or or basically refutes what he said. Because otherwise I'm thinking we're we're tampering with censorship if we we handled it any differently. So I'm just curious, what are your thoughts on that?
3: Yeah, it's a great question. And I think, and I think when we look at the work that we did here in Madison over the course of the, uh over the 2020 election, everything leading up to that and from that, but also when I look at the work that the Associated Press does, right, nobody, no news organization is perfect. But what I really appreciated over the course of the last several years was when news organizations actually started writing more authoritatively. I think we were, we were nervous at first and I don't, for everybody but we were nervous at first like we haven't really had a president like this in the past and so because of the office i think there was some initial hesitancy to wait can we really tell people that the president just just lied can we do that in a news story and what we found i think over the course of three or four years is not only can we do that we need to do that because it's not like we're going to censor the president of the united states But what I saw from our news organization, from news organizations throughout the enterprises and the Associated Press is they were publishing. This is what came out of the administration. But then the next graph and the graph before that, and then several times throughout the story was, but this has been refuted and this is false. And here's how we know it's false. And here's a link to prove that it's false. But now carry on with the conversation. And I think that that was important because not only were you telling people what wasn't true, but you were also letting them know that you were an organization that they could come to if they really had questions. And so we weren't going to block one whole half of the country or 39 percent of the country. But we wanted to engage in a conversation that also held those people accountable. And so I thought that the tact that we took that other news organizations took. And and the AP, I think, probably led the way on that. They were the first ones I saw writing authoritatively on that. I thought it was important that we did that. It was the first time I had seen it in my career. And I think what that then led to was a a lot of longtime readers of our news organization saying, wait, you can't write that in a news story. And our answer was, we can, and we're going to continue to do that because we need the public to know what's true and what's not. And we're telling you, we're publishing what he said because he's the president. It's not true, and here's how we know. And here are the facts. Does that answer your question?
0: Yes, we're on the same page, and and, and basically uh, leaving it to the news consumers to draw their own inferences or conclusions. So we, you and I are on the same page.
1: May I ask a follow up question to that? Because in addition to Everything that the three of you have said, I think it also bumps up against this question of um, news organizations as being partisan. Right. Because because not only were you fact checking a, a, a president and the institution of the presidency, you were doing so in the throes of an election and it under the allegations of fake news and a liberal media bias um, but they were they were not they were falsehoods. So how did you how do you juggle that accusation of bias when it's not something that's partisan and you have to call out when a lie is a lie because I have personally just been struggling with that when it's not something that's partisan, it's not something that's personal. it's just a fact and that it's difficult to kind of wrap your arms around that.
3: I think I can, I'd be happy to start. And I think the way that I'd lead with that is you have to be consistent about it. You have to do it all the time. Doesn't matter who's in the White House. Doesn't matter who's in the governor's mansion. Doesn't matter who's in the Capitol. Right. So, I mean, I think the best, the best example I could give is if you were fact checking Donald Trump and his administration for the last four or five years and you were writing with authority in that way, you have to do the same thing for the current administration and whoever comes next and whoever comes next. A big part of The reason I think that news organizations have become so, oh, I don't know what the right way to say it is, so ingrained in our society is we as an industry have built up, I think, decades and decades of credibility. And the reason that we build up credibility is because we're consistent and thoughtful in our approach. And so I guess the best way I can say it is, if you did it for the previous administration, you have to fact check the current administration and you have to continue to do that left, right, blue, red, doesn't matter. Call it the same way all the time. The situation shouldn't necessarily change based on who's in office. And so I think it's our job to remember that. And, and, and if we held somebody else accountable for a previous job, For a previous position, we have to do that as the government changes, our elected officials change. It's not about a name and it's not about a party. It's about the role that we play and the standard that we have to hold ourselves up to. That's that's how I'd start.
4: I also think by um, Allison, making sure that each uh, that each fact is attributed to a source and ensuring that this is where we're getting this information from. And I definitely understand that the public started to, um, like, quote, take sides during the election period because they thought that this was information to sway them on one side or the other, when it really is not. As you pointed out, it's just what the facts are. And to kind of rewind to the last question for the public who is watching and may not know, when we talk about that, uh, that editorial that ran in the Wall Street Journal, that letter by Trump, he said specifically that the election was rigged. And so that is, not that has been dismissed by the actual facts. Right. So when we talk about the difference between a fact and then just propaganda. That's what we're talking about. Not opinion, not censoring people, not saying that you can't share your feelings about or, or perspective about a particular topic. But if it's a fact, it is checkable. And there is uh, ways to document with this with this information, where it came from and what makes it correct.
2: Well, that's really what, when I was listening to Jason answer, that's really what I thought, what I thought you were, you were saying, which was, you know, when we all agree that something has happened, that a fact has occurred, then we can talk about what to do about it, what types of policies to develop, those sorts of things. And those are subjective. That's about values. That's about priorities. But all of you have made the point that when you know something is demonstrably not true, that's different from you know, a subjective policy preference. Uh, We want to talk a little bit about why um, everybody here should, should trust the work that you do. And all of you have done some really great work um, in your careers and continue to do some really great work. So, uh, but I want to start with you, Michael, because in a previous conversation, I heard you say something really interesting that I think uh, I'd love for you to expand upon. Uh, When you were an editor at the Chicago Tribune, you said that one of the things you did with stories uh, when a journalist submitted a story to you was you would attempt to discredit the story, which I found really interesting. You said I, I would try to discredit the story and only when the story could stand up to that kind of scrutiny, would it make it to print? I think that's um, really interesting. I hadn't heard it said that way before. And it also I think gives us a lot of um, comfort to know the kind of rigor that you apply to stories. Could, could you expand upon that idea?
0: Yeah. So basically uh, the vetting process. We're vet- I'm vetting stories uh, or cross-examining stories, much like a prosecuting attorney. Uh, as you just stated, you know if it withstands that scrutiny, then I'll begin polishing the content. You know, because ultimately, you know, I believe that editors should polish the content as opposed to demolish the content. But it must, the content must withstand the. Uh, the rigorous fact-checking process. Um, And, you know, and as an editor, and I don't know whether most editors think along these lines, but whenever I write or edit anything, libel is always at the forefront of my mind, all right? Regardless of the material, because, you know, basically anyone who had any connection with the story or had any involvement can be uh, basically uh, sued. So, if I wrote a story, or if you wrote a if you wrote a story, uh, Lawrence, I read the story. Uh, Jason read, read the story. It turns out to be litigious or libelous. Everyone is involved in the is included in the uh, the lawsuit or potential lawsuit. So, libel is always at the forefront of my mind whenever I uh, edit anything and. <clears throat> Something else that was, uh, that was uh, raised earlier, I forgot who raised the point, but, um, you know, credibility, you know, it all boils down to credibility. And we're the public's watchdog. And so as an editor, I see myself as being more or less like the gatekeeper and ensuring that uh, wherever the information, wherever information that is disseminated, uh, the public can trust.
2: And Jason, I've actually heard you talk a little bit about this as well uh, in your work at Lee Enterprises, and you, and you put it in a really interesting way. You talked about level one, level two, and level three stories. Uh, and as you sort of creep up into more serious and more uh, possibly litigious stories, more and more people get involved and more layers of fact-checking, and you're, and you're, you're more careful. So can you, can you walk us through that as an editor in your work?
3: Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, the, this level one, level two, level three thing has gotten way too much run, I think, Lawrence. So, uh, But I but I but I appreciate the comments. That's that's very kind. I mean, listen, I mean, I I think what I'm about to say is probably not breaking news. Right. But I mean, uh, if, if you're writing a story, uh, a one day story, uh, a level one story, something that's maybe going to have a couple hours or a day of shelf life, and it's coming from an official source like you know public health is saying that you know the mask mandate in Dane County has been extended until November 27th what probably that entails is you know we're going to we're going to write it up we're going to talk to as many people as we can from that organization if they're available and we're just going to we're we're going to give it a a good hard look based on the fact that the source that we're working with at that time is a familiar one we've developed a relationship from them they would in 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 many cases have no reason to put out incorrect information about their own organization and i think you know the 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 place that you start with those shorter stories is how familiar are, are you with the source what's their credibility level over the course of time that you've developed with them and they've developed with you and i think you know not that you ever want to just take something for granted and just believe it but i think that there are some cases where we would all acknowledge generally speaking there's just some bodies of information that you can probably go to go to press with or or publish without 3 days of scrutiny right i mean that that's we know that but i think what i would say as you get into a level 2 story which is maybe something that's going to evolve over the course of a week or a level three story that's a longer investigation, a bigger enterprise piece, a multiple series package, the deeper that the reporting goes, the more people that you talk to, the more interested parties that you might have from a story. Maybe you're dealing with people and it's a sensitive story and there are clear agendas at stake. I think I don't want to be overly general and say, you know it when you see it, but I would like to think, that the amount of fact-checking and editing that a story gets probably equates to how long it took to prepare it. Now, I'm not saying it's a one-to-one comparison. Work on a story for a month, you're going to fact-check the story for the month. But the deeper you dive, the deeper the edits have to be, the more time thoughtful editors have to spend with it. The deeper you go on a story, The more questions you have to ask and when you know that you're reporting on a topic that's really sensitive in the community or it involves both sides of an aisle you have to ask more questions so i think in general um the deeper you go the more editing it takes if that makes sense
2: and uh, michael brought up this point and i and i've heard you bring it up before uh, jason which is that um, you know um, possible legal action is always at the front of your mind and i I think i think one of the Uh, consistent things I hear from people is that, you know, you hear a rumor and it gets run in the paper. Um, I don't think a lot of people realize just how cautious uh, you are in the newspaper industry and how worried you are about, as Lolly alluded to earlier, kind of bringing the whole enterprise down. Right. So I would imagine as you get to those level two and level three stories, uh, you're triple checking, you know, four or five times, however many times you, you possibly can so that you're not held liable. Right.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, it's of course. Right. And I mean, I think that uh, I think two other things and then we can probably leave it at that unless unless Lolly wants to jump in. But I think I think for me, um, you want to just you want to wake up every morning and you want to believe that everything's going to be fine and everybody's going to be honest with you and the whole world is is going to is going to treat each other from a basic level of respect and transparency. We all know that that's not the case. We know that there are parties out there that have have interests that do not involve truth in journalism. We know that. We know that there's propaganda. We've seen it firsthand over the course of the last five years. And so, I mean, I I, I think that that's exactly right. And I would even take that a step further. And I would say that equally as important, and, and let's all agree here, no one's perfect, right? We all know that we're not perfect. We've all made a million mistakes. But I think what also tells a lot about your commitment to getting it right is how you handle a situation when you get it wrong. We had a situation here in Madison, and I'm not going to get into the specifics, but within the last couple of weeks, there were some fundamental aspects of a story that just weren't reported correctly. Now, I can sit here and say it was because of a poor press release or that somebody wasn't available to ask a follow-up question. Nobody cares about that. Our audience does not care about that they want the information right. We didn't get it right. And so here's what we had to do. We had to write an editor's note that we put right at the top of the story for anybody who accesses that story going forward, saying, editor's note, an original version of this story said this, this, and this. However, throughout the course of additional reporting, we were able able to determine this, this, and this. And here's where we are now. And what you're reading is the current version of what we now believe to be true, And that editor's note, and I'm talking about like you're looking at a screen, it it was this long. It was, you know, it was like four or five sentences. I thought it was really long, but it also spelled out everything that we needed to spell out uh, to our audience saying, hey, you know what? If you read an earlier version of this, this was wrong. We own it. If you're on a mobile device, you have to push the story back out with the new headline, the correct information for print. What I like to see, uh, you know, on the second, third day of that story was we didn't bury the follow ups on A3 or A5. No, I mean, when we had the full version of this situation that happened downtown come out in court, stripped across the top of the front page because the original story was on the front page. And so when we get something wrong, I'm not saying that every correction is going to wind up on the front page. And in fact, we all know that's that's not that's not how we operate here, but in a situation like that, I think it says a lot about how you handle your mistakes. And I know that for us and the enterprises, if we want to make a, if we make a mistake, we need to be the ones to raise our hands, own it in front of our audience members, explain to them how the mistake was made, what steps we've taken to rectify it, and then make sure that we stay with the story until its natural conclusion. I think audiences, um, I think not only do they appreciate it in this day and age. That's a requirement. That's a demand because we're never going to get it right all day, every day. So when we get it wrong, how are we responding to that as a news organization and as an industry? And that's almost as equally as important to me as the fact checking from the outset, because we're going to make mistakes. How how are you going to handle the mistakes? Are you going to sweep them under the rug or are you going to raise your hand and say, no, we messed up? We messed up. This is our fault, but here's what we've learned for you.
1: Um, I have a question for Ms. Bowen um, to build on your experience, um, because you have just such a tremendous um, body of experience. And I was reading of the the stories that you have reported on Um at the New Orleans Times-Picayune and at the Chicago Tribune. You've been a Neiman Fellow at Harvard. You've won a Studs Terkel Award on top of all these other awards. Um, and today you are a media and storytelling program officer at the Field Foundation. Um, and so you have told so many stories. I was hoping that you could tell us what makes somebody else's story especially interesting to you and then could you also as we've been talking i've been thinking a lot about trust how do you how how do you get someone whose story you're telling to trust you to tell their story and do you feel that that kind of storytelling then engenders trust among your readers
4: um so for me the work that I've always done to get to your question, Allison, was always focused on trying to find extraordinary moments from ordinary people and really connecting with uh, the humanity in everyday people in the way decisions, but then the way that those decisions propel them into extraordinary moments. Um, And what I wanted to do with the work is to show how all of our humanity was connected and how we all have agency and we all have the ability and the authority within our lives lives to build a narrative, to build a story, and to build a life around our own decisions. So, um, you know, it's interesting because we're talking about democracy and people choose and people having the authority. In many ways, the work that uh, in the stories that I tried to to select and tell were stories to empower people to see that with a very um, modest sometimes adjustment, you could really make an impact on your life, on your community, on your neighborhood. And so for me, that was the ethos. I was also particularly um, struck when I went into journalism that I felt, uh, particularly when it came to mainstream media, that there were stories and not enough stories being told about Black and brown communities and marginalized communities of uh, Uh, residents who are living with disabilities, for example, or residents who identify as LGBTQIA. And so I wanted to make sure that I gave a special focus to the communities that I felt were not being spoken to or being pulled into the conversation by the mainstream media. And so when I got the platform to do it, that's where I did much of my outreach in terms of trying to mine and dig and really find stories to tell and to share. Um, I also wanted to tell stories that illuminated and illustrated The impact of public policy, of housing policy, um, of poverty, um, of laws that uh, enforce poverty and those that relieve them, and just kind of demonstrate through, again, anecdotal stories, how policy is lived, how rules and regulations are lived um, through the public. Um, For me, the way that I built trust with sources and got people to tell me their stories and share their stories with me was one, being available and really putting in the time to get to know people and allow them to, the time to share. Um, and quite frankly, I always, as a journalist, was willing to take no for an answer. You know, I recognized that some of the stories that I told were very sensitive. And so if people were not willing to open up or ready to open up, I was willing to accept that. But so many times in the communities that I was reaching out to and the people that I were talking to, because they had never had anyone actually listen to them, They wanted to open up and tell their stories. Um, You know, one of the stories I'm thinking about most specifically is um, a story that I wrote about a young man named Cornbread German. And he was shot and killed um, less than a mile away in on on the south side of Chicago, about less than a mile from the president's home. And I did the initial story like most of my colleagues in the media did um, about the shooting and what happened that night. But then I decided to call the family again the next day just to follow up with them and check in with them and see how they were doing and how they were processing this trauma and if there was anything that I could do. But when I called... The mother of Cornbread German answered the phone and she told me that the medical examiner's office had been calling her all day to come and identify the body of her son. And she said, We have to go down to the medical examiner's office. Are you coming? She asked me, was I coming? And as a reporter, as a person who was standing witness, how could I say no? At this point, I felt that it was my duty to just be there as an ear and as an eye and to serve as witness with them. So they invited me into the story um, as, you know, as they were, as it was unfolding to them. And then I got the, the luxury really to be able to tell that to the public, because what I found in going to the medical examiner's office with this family is that it didn't matter whether your child was labeled or stereotyped, whether they did well in school, whether they were an A student or you know a D student about to drop out. When it's your child laying on that table, it's just your baby. And we can all relate to that. When it's your brother that's laying on that table, it's just your brother, right? None of the outside baggage matters. And so being able to, to write about that and to tell that story, particularly to our readers, to let them, Remember that these are not just statistics. These are not just numbers. These are human beings. These are people that are having these experiences. You know, I just felt like it transcended the page. And I do think, Allison, that when you tell those types of stories, particularly when you know to kind of build upon what Jason and Michael was talking about as editors, when you tell those types of stories that are fact-based that you have the medical examiner's report, that you have the police report, that you have the actual documentation, that you have crossed every T and dotted the I. Not only does the, the story become more compelling to the public, but the fact that you have the facts builds trust among the public, right? That you can attribute it to this is not uh, something that is uh, made up, that I actually have the documents and I was there and saw and witnessed. I th- I think it does bring a, a new level of trust to the, the readers and the people that you are um, communicating within your audience. I hope that answers your question. It, it does. And that's a, it's just a very
1: powerful, very powerful way as well. Thank you for that.
2: Well, and you know, uh, we had an audience question that I think actually works really well on top of what Lolly just shared, which was really powerful. Um, and i I think it's it's somewhat related this comes from um allison Ritchie, and she says um i'm a sophomore communication journalism and sociology student at shippensburg university and when people ask me about my future plans in the journalism field they often scoff so as professionals how do you combat these pointed feelings of media distrust when they feel maybe a little bit too personal and I'll just add to her question, you know, when media is under attack, hearing the really powerful testimonies of all of you about the work that you do, you know, how does it feel? How do you respond to the criticism of media? How do you respond to somebody like Allison, who really is passionate about this field?
3: Well, I mean, I think the the first thing, the, the first thing that I would say is, and, and this maybe calls back to a previous answer that I gave, right? I mean, like, you know, it, it is important to hold people accountable and and to point out mistakes, but I think... What has worked for me and I've gotten this question from young people, too, and and we'll continue to get it, by the way, we'll continue to get it because we will we will be under fire. And this will continue to be difficult. Right. I mean, it is difficult to be in position to tell the truth. And, And so especially today in such a polarized society. And so, like, I think some of the things that I've had success with is trying to block out the noise and have a conversation with the person who is asking you about, what do you think about this thing that I want to do for the rest of my life? And I'm seeing this, 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 and this, and it scares me. And I think the first thing that you do is you be honest about it. And you say, it's scary. It's a huge responsibility. We need young people coming in behind us, right? I mean, this only works in our country Journalism and democracy only works if it continues in perpetuity. And so I think you start off being honest and say, you know what? These are great questions. I'm really glad you're thinking about these things because it's hard. But then block out the noise and talk about, I can't speak for anybody else, but here's what's worked for me. Work hard, tell the truth, build good relationships, hold people accountable, and when you're wrong, say you're wrong. And if you can get on board with those five or six things then here's what a road looks like for you and just be honest with them about it. I mean, they're obviously bringing it up because they're thinking about it and they want to be the next generation of journalists. And I think the worst thing we can do is not be honest about the challenges that we face today. What I find is that young people today, college students, high school students, people in their early twenties, they want to know what they're getting into for real. You don't have to worry about scaring them away We're smart. We're dealing with smart people. So, be honest with them. Talk about what's worked for you. Talk about how you hold the people in your own organization and within your community accountable and some of the steps that you take to make sure that where you work and the work that you do gets done the right way. And I think that... uh, that any other approach, you know, you'll have varied levels of success. But I think if we're going to be honest with our readers, we need to be honest about about what we're doing and how we're approaching it with the future journalists. Don't worry about scaring them. I think we've got really smart people who care a lot about the future of this country. And I think just be honest with them and. Tell them a great story like Lolly just told us about here's how I get involved with my community. Here's how I report stories. Here's a success story that I had with editing. Here are some of the challenges I personally faced and how I got through them. I think it starts with being honest about the road that's ahead, but also letting them know that there are huge rewards for being involved in an institution that will pave the way to where our country is going to go And it's played a huge role in how we've gotten to this point. I mean, anything in life is risk reward. There are some people who get into the business for various reasons. I think the thing that we can do as editors and as leaders today is just be honest with them with what they're in for. And if they need our help, let's give it to them.
1: We have um, a couple more student questions, um, and and I just want to say, um, Allison Richie uh, had the last question, and she actually asked another question. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna jump over to a new student. But Allison is a tremendous writer. So the fact that she is uh, inquiring about journalism and is excited about this. Um, I think speaks to the next generation of journalists and, um, and journalism is lucky to have a writer that is as powerful as Allison is. Her her writing is amazing. Um, uh, So uh, the next question comes from Abigail, who asks a great question. How do journalists handle the pressure of knowing? if what they are publishing is going to be 100% factual, and if they are providing their readers with reliable information. And actually, I want to know that also because it does feel like a lot of pressure.
2: It feels like a lot of pressure. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: (laughs) Well, I can just think for myself. Um, I don't feel the pressure because I've done this for nearly 40 years. So it's just a part of who I am. I'm naturally skeptical. I cross-examine everything that anyone tells me. So as far as pressure, I don't feel pressure, but I do feel the responsibility to make sure, to ensure that, um, you know, whatever is being published or or whatever information that's being disseminated is accurate. But I don't necessarily feel the pressure. I I don't know whether other editors feel that way, but um, actually I enjoy it. I enjoy what I do, so I don't feel the pressure. Well,
4: I know for me, I agree with Michael, Um, you know, one of the great things about being in a newsroom is that you're surrounded by people who love to know it all, right? And you have at your disposal the books, the um, the uh, the apps, all of the resources that you need in order to do a lot of the fact-checking. So there is pressure to get it right, but there's no better feeling, there's no better uh, exhilaration than when you do get it right. Um, I'm thinking of a story that I did um, a few years ago um, about about a young woman in Chicago who was trending on social media. I noticed that she was trending because she was known as a beauty blogger. She was known for her hair. And uh, she started trending because she came to the public and said that she had been diagnosed with uh, a rare form of cancer and that forced her to shave her head. And I remember when I decided to pursue the story, I knew I was going to need those medical records because unfortunately, people are not always honest about what's happening with them um, But again, there was no better feeling Than when she agreed To allow me to tell her story But then I pulled those medical records I actually got to interview her doctor Go to some of the doctor's appointments with her And it actually it did not only Fact check the story It made the story a lot more rich and a lot more nuanced, and a lot more personal. So, I'm with Michael. Fact-checking has uh, always been um, almost an exhilarating part of the story, because you have people tell you stories, and sometimes they sound so unbelievable. And then you start pulling records, and it's like, wow, wow, look at this, look at this. It's all documented. So, it, it takes off the pressure, and then it lends to your credibility.
2: Do any of you worry that the Internet and social media and all these different platforms have opened the doors to people who don't have the same standards as you do? And as as journalism has grown, and, and I, f- I feel like we have more access to good journalism today than ever before, we also have just as easy access and probably easier access. Like the Wall Street Journal is paywalled, right? And InfoWars is not. I think we have easier access to the disinformation. So does that worry you? I mean, what do you think about how social media proliferate stuff that it doesn't have the same standards that Jason's talking about.
0: It it is a concern because social media is a double-edged sword Uh, for journalists. It does allow us to access content and audiences, but at the same time, as you just stated, Lawrence, uh, it also enables non-journalists to disseminate fake news and um, other falsehoods. So It does concern me, but something that Jason said um, about standards, it kind of takes me back to what the former uh, editor-in-chief of the Chicago Tribune said, that regardless of platforms, it's all about content. So it doesn't matter whether we deliver the content on, on a paper bag or in a newspaper, it's all about content.
3: I think the the one thing that I would add, and I know Lolly wants to jump in here too, but the one thing that does concern me, and I want to be clear about this is, listen, I'm on Facebook all the time, and I see the same people every day, and I see their same opinions every day. And I am friends with like, I don't know what my number is, like 800 or something. I see the same stuff from the same 50 people all the time. And we know that there are echo chambers that exist completely because of social media. And so I think the one thing that does concern me is if, And we I mean, let's face it, this is the reality that we've been living in for the last five or six years. I mean, if you only surround yourself with people that think exactly like you, you're either not going to have or allow yourself to have access to a whole completely different side of a conversation. And I think the best way our country has operated is when there's communication and conversation. It can be hard. It can be ugly and it can be gross and it will continue to be ugly and gross and difficult. For as long as we exist as human beings. Right. But I mean, I think the thing that I always really liked before was that you knew that there would be a conversation among two different parties out in the open and you would see it play out and agree, disagree. At least you could hear each other. I can't hear people who don't agree with me or don't like the same movies that I like or don't listen to the same podcasts I listen to or don't listen to the same music I listen to because the only people who who can see what I'm writing and what I'm looking at are the exact same people. And that's how Facebook works sometimes. And so that's a fear. The fear is, is that we won't have access to a real conversation, a thoughtful conversation, because what has developed are echo chambers that are frankly, extremely detrimental for, for our country, probably. That's the biggest concern I have.
0: And Lawrence uh, touched on that in his uh, recent piece for the Post uh, Gazette on uh, ideological silos. So yeah, two of your, yeah.
2: Thanks for the shout out there, Mike.
1: <laughs> <laughs> if we have time for one last question, I think we should end on a high note. Uh, mm. The three of you do different things. So could each of you pick something that you are excited about for the future of each of your lanes of journalism? Is there something that makes you happy? Is there something that you look into the future and you think, you know what? I this this is going to this is going to spark joy. We're going to Marie Kondo journalism and we're going to keep this.
0: I think for me last year's demonstrations I found them encouraging in that we saw Masses of young people across the country uh, actively participating in this democracy, and one of the questions that one of the students asked about uh, journalism, you know, I think those individuals with that uh, with that level of consciousness or that sense of civic responsibility, uh, I imagine a number of them are. There are a number of uh, future journalists in that in that crowd or that bunch, and so I am encouraged by the overall. Uh, What I've seen overall with respect to the younger generation, I think they're uh, they're fearless. Uh, I think that they're conscious and I don't think that what I saw was performative activism. Uh, So I'm encouraged by the younger generation, um, uh, today's younger generation.
4: Um, For me, I would say that if they're Coming from last year in the reckonings, I think that there is a newfound interest in ethnic media and a newfound interest in media that serves LGBTQIA audiences. And I think that people really have an appetite to know more and learn more. And so as a result, they are going to the news sources that are more grassroots and on the ground, places like Capital B or Our Body Politic or the Windy City Times here in Chicago. And so I think it's really encouraging to see the media ecosystem become more diverse and to see the audience for it become more engaged and really open up their media appetites and start to absorb information from many different sources rather than just relying on one.
3: That's a great answer. I don't know how you compete with either one of those. I mean, those are the are thing. I mean, I mean, listen, I'm a, I'm a simple guy, right? I mean, like it doesn't take a whole lot to get me excited. I'm going to go home tonight and I'm going to eat like a waffle and a piece of bacon and maybe some eggs. And it's going to be like the best meal I've had this week. Like, so it really doesn't take that much to get me excited and and frankly every day that i get to work for lee enterprises in the wisconsin state journal i honestly it's a gift because when i was 20 years old i had no idea that this is what i was going to be doing 25 30 years later at the time it was something i did in college and i was majoring in it but you know you don't know what's going to happen i mean up until three minutes before i graduated from college i was either going to go work for a newspaper or I was going to go be an officer on the Wisconsin State Patrol. And I really didn't know. I had an opportunity to do both. And so no regrets. I love where I'm at. And I think the thing that really gets me excited every day, one is about people and one's about technology. I mean, I think the tech that we have available to us, if done right, right now, gives us an ability to show what we're trying to write, right? Like, I mean, for for decades, for centuries, We've used the written word and it's been our Bible. It's been our main access point to the truth. But now with video and if you're in the right place at the right time and you know how to FOIA the right way and body cameras on police, we don't have to rely on just the word anymore. We can show you what happened because we were there with our cameras. And I'm not talking about gotcha moments, although there there are some of those for sure. But I, I tell people all the time show me don't tell me you know you you want to talk about doing something do it and let's talk about the results so i love that we have the technology at our disposal if we're using it responsibly to show our audience members the things that we've been trying to tell them over the course of time but really i mean you know it's the people it's the colleagues that 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 excite me i mean we have in madison and throughout the enterprises we have just such a wide range of journalists i you know over the course of today i had a conversation with a very very young business reporter who's doing amazing work and 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 jumped into a market and is building relationships that you know are really impressive and then i can deal with our city reporter who's been on the job for decades and everybody in the city trusts and he 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 wakes up every morning with one goal and that's What's going on with the city of Madison? And I say that it's the colleagues because at this point, and we want to end on a positive note, but I will say we all know the contraction that our industry has taken over the course of the years. And so, what I know every day for a fact is that when I come to work, for certain, the people who I work with want to be here. They want to be here and they care about what they do. And when you see your friends, your brothers and sisters show up every day, knowing we don't know what's gonna happen today, but whatever happens, we've got it. That inspires me. And so old journalists, young journalists, people my age, people just coming into it, people who've been done with it for 20 years. I appreciate the people who show up and try to do this work every day because our country needs it now more than ever. And so I appreciate the people. Technology's big. People are always gonna be what carries this industry.
2: Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Utterly Moderate Podcast. Before we go, we want to remind you to visit our website, utterlymoderatenetwork.com. There you can find all of our podcast episodes and their companion resources, our guide to reliable news outlets, the contact page where you can suggest topics for future shows, and more. That's utterlymoderatenetwork.com. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us on our next episode. And until then, we'll play you out with friends of the show, the Riders in the Sky. Happy trails to you Until we meet again Happy trails to you
3: Keep smiling until then Who cares about the clouds when we're together just sing the song and bring the sunny weather Happy trails
4: to you Till we meet
2: We meet again. Happy trails to you. Keep smiling until then.
3: Who cares about the clouds when we're together? Just sing the song and bring the sunny weather. Happy trails to you. Till we
2: meet again.
0: Goodbye, good luck, and may the good Lord take a liking to you.